Amen. Thank you, guys. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as we uh, conclude our, our week of focusing on the uh, five solos of the Reformation, not, not uh, finishing thinking about those things or uh, holding to those things, but kind of this, this special time of emphasis on those things is uh, concluding this morning. It's, it's really neat, uh, very exciting to me that there are just so many great churches in our, in our region right now in the central Illinois area. I think God is doing some neat things in uh, the churches in, in this area, and so it's, it's exciting uh, by God's grace uh, to be a part of that. And so I know that you were encouraged by uh, my friend Kevin last week as he talked about the glory of God alone, that being our ultimate purpose, and so uh, thankful for him for being here. As you turn to Romans 1, just a reminder of a couple things. First of all, come, <coughs> excuse me, come back this evening for our, our Sunday evening service. We're going to be able to uh, spend some time together. We're going to uh, spend some time in prayer as well together this evening and then have a, a family uh, time of meeting. And so it's really important, I think, for us as a church to come together for that. Also, this week is our Be Real night for our, our ladies, and so be sure to come and be a part of that. And then also this morning, or I guess technically it might be this afternoon, end of the morning, we're having our, our newcomer meal, as has been mentioned. And so if you're uh, new to the church, we would love to have lunch with you. And I think a couple of you have mentioned a desire to come to that. So uh, please, please come to that after this service. It'll be in the room right across the hall, and I don't think there'll be a lot of time of having to tear things down because since there's not Sunday school this morning, so come and be a part of that uh, the, the, after, uh, after this service. Well, we're looking at Romans 1. We'll be back in the Pentateuch next week, back in the book of Numbers, but this morning we are in Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 1, and so if you are able to, if you would just uh, stand with me in honor of God as we read just a little bit of his word together this morning. Here's what Paul is writing in Romans 1. Paul's Paul's talking about the gospel and how he's eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. And then he says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... That's the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And and Heavenly Father, again, we do just ask for your time of special grace on this this morning. It's neat to be uh, all in one service this morning. We thank you for the, the great testimonies of of faith we heard in you earlier. Help us uh, together to encourage one another in our faith as we think about faith and faith alone in your son Jesus this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. As Kevin mentioned last week, there are kind of five statements that help us understand the core convictions of the time of the Reformation and the core convictions of the Reformers, and really five truths that should be central to any 
a good gospel preaching, Christ-centered church today. These are our marks of, of what makes a church healthy. If they, they hold to these things, remember the phrases are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, sola dea gloria. So we believe on the basis of the authority of Scripture ultimately, or Scripture alone, that we are saved by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas and what they mean. Scripture tells us we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God ultimately, or the glory of God alone. And uh, my assignment in this uh, conference is to look at the idea of of sola fide, the the biblical truth of sola fide, faith alone, saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And uh, before I begin to kind of go into looking at sola fide and this passage here in Romans chapter 1, I want to ask you a question And it's a question that I've asked many of you individually. I've mentioned this question corporately before uh, to our church. And and the question is a very important one, but very simple. If you were to die today on your way home from church or this evening, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say to God? If you were to die today, and you were to stand before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, what, what would you say to him? It, it's, a, it's an important question because death is a reality facing all of us unless the Lord returns. Uh, this, this past week, my, uh, my son was at a friend's house, and he, he uh, was, was there, and so I texted him. I said, hey, how are things going? He said, oh, things are going well. Uh, do, you, do you need me to come home now? I said, no, no, no. And, and I texted back. I said, um, just let us know when you're ready to head home. You can stay a little longer if you'd like. And then I hit send. And then I realized that instead of texting my son, I texted my grandmother. <laughs> Just let us know when you're ready to head home. You can stay a little longer if you'd like. <laughs> Text her back. That was for Austin. <laughs> that wasn't a survey, right? You know? All of us are headed home, though, right? All of us are, are ultimately heading home. And so when we do stand before God and he, we were to say, why, why should I end up? What would you say to him? What, what would you, what, on what basis would you say, here's why I believe that, that I should be in heaven? In fact, just, just take a moment and either maybe write down a word or two or, or answer that question in your mind. What would you say if God asked that question of you? It's an incredibly important question. It deals with the most in, important topic that you can wrestle with as a human being. What would you say? The answer to that question plagued a young German monk named Martin Luther over 500 years ago. He was distraught. He did not know on what basis he could stand before God. He did not know on what basis he could be led into heaven. And so Martin Luther, this monk, about 500 years ago, tried all sorts of things in order to to be confident that he had a good relationship with God. He was in a a storm whenever he decided to become a monk, and and he cried out, and he asked for God's favor. He prayed to to a a saint, and and then he he spent 
his time as a monk trying to, to assure himself that his relationship with God was, was secure. He, he would fast for long periods of time. He would refrain from, from sleep. He would spend long time in prayer. When he did sleep, he would sometimes not even take a blanket because he wanted to, to suffer in the cold. He was trying to do all these things, hoping that by some, some means he could be confident that he deserved to be in right relationship with God. He was sent as a monk to Rome from Germany, and when he went to Rome, they were selling these indulgences, and he, he purchased one. An indulgence was a slip of paper. There was a belief that the church had like a, a treasury or a big bank account full of, of grace that Christ had purchased. And the belief was that the church had this big treasury, and the church could kind of take some of that grace and, and give it to people through the sacraments or, or through these things that people would do. People would in conjunction with their faith, would do these things and they would receive God's grace that the, the church had at its store. And one of the ways that it was believed that a person could, could, could get a hold of this grace that the church possessed was through these indulgences. And so a person could give the church money and then they would have to perhaps do something along with the money they would give the church and they would receive this, this piece of paper, the certificate, and they could write the name on it. And there was a belief that that the name that they wrote on there could, could be freed from purgatory. And so Luther goes to Rome. He purchases an indulgence for his grandfather. And he's told that if he gives the money here to the church, he gets this indulgence, writes his grandfather's name on the piece of paper, and then if he will say the Lord's Prayer on each of these 40 steps in front of this church while crawling on his knees, that his grandfather's soul will be released from purgatory. So Luther pays the money, he receives the slip of paper, he writes his grandfather's name on it, and he gets on the first step. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and so forth. And then he gets, climbs up to the second step. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Third step, fourth step, gets all the way to the top, looks at the piece of paper, stands up and says, Who knows? Who knows whether it is so? He's obsessed with with wanting to know that he's right before God. He goes back home and he, and he begins to confess all his sins to his confessor. And finally his confessor just gets sick of him and says, Martin, man, you got to lighten up. Like, come back to me when you have some real sin to confess, like killing your parents. But this is just kind of driving me crazy. And so he, he tells Luther, he says, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to teach here at the University of Wittenberg. And I, I want you to just teach through the Bible. And so Martin Luther teaches through Psalms. And then he begins to teach through Romans. And he comes to verse 17. I want you to look at verse 17 with me, if you will. And he comes, he's teaching through Romans, and he comes to verse 17, and he reads this. Okay, so, so read it along here with me. It says, for in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther looks at that and goes, man, that is not good. Because here's what he thinks it means. When it says the righteousness of God is revealed, he, he looks also at verse 18. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He says, okay, here's, here's God. And verse 17, thinks Luther, verse 17 is telling me that God is righteous. The righteousness of God has been revealed. And so here's God in his righteousness. And here's, here's me. So when God's righteousness is revealed, it's revealed how sinful I am. And as God's righteousness is revealed, I am in big trouble because I am nowhere near where I need to be, thinks Luther. The gospel reveals God's righteousness, his, his otherness, his holiness. And it's the basis, thinks Luther as he reads this, it's the basis why he can judge me. 
His, his wrath can be revealed because I am part, thinks Luther, I am part of the ungodly. And I've prayed, I've fasted, I've bought these indulgences, I've slept without a blanket, I've done all these things, I've entered the monastery, I've done all these things, but I am no closer to God than, than I was when I began this process. He's terrified. But then he looks at it again. Look at it again with me. He shakes his head. I'm missing something here. He, says, he writes, he was, he was eager to understand what this was saying. And then he realizes, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does verse 16 say? Verse 16 says that Paul's not ashamed of, of the gospel. Now, what does gospel mean? Gospel means good news. And Luther thinks, man, this is not good news. This is bad news. The, it's bad news that God is righteous and I'm not righteous. How can this be good news? Well, I, let me look at it again. And then he says this. It says, he reads verse 16, the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the, the, the power of God for what? What does it say? Yeah, for salvation, not wrath, for salvation. And he says, whoa, wait, wait, that's, that's good. There's, there's deliverance here. There's rescue. This isn't about, the gospel isn't about how God is going to exercise his wrath. The gospel is a message about rescue from wrath. And then he reads on. It says this. It's, it's salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he goes, ah, I understand what this is saying. This isn't saying Here's God's righteousness, and the gospel reveals how, God, how righteous God is so he can judge you. He says this, the gospel message is about how I, who am a sinner, can obtain this righteousness that I need. The righteousness of God is revealed not for judgment, but so that I can know how I can have this righteousness through faith through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Luther realizes it's not about working to earn your salvation, but about receiving the righteousness of God through faith. It's an earth-shattering discovery for him. Luther would write, as he talks, as he talks about this, he would say it means that through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness and all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. In 1517, when Luther is nailing his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, challenging the practices of indulgences, the, the, the issue that this church is struggling with is do I need to do works to be saved, or am I saved by, by faith and faith alone? As I've been thinking about speaking on this idea of faith alone, one of the things I've been wrestling with is, is this. Okay, how, how does this doctrine, this idea of being saved by faith alone, how does it affect the evangelical church today in 2017? What's, what's the thing that you and I struggle with when it comes to the idea of faith alone? Well, I think just like in Luther's day, there are many people in, in good churches who do not understand this reality that we're not saved by our works, that we're saved by faith. In fact, I would say that, that many people who are in churches today aren't Christians because they have not placed their faith alone in Jesus Christ, alone for their salvation. I read one study recently, uh, 51% 
of people who would say they're evangelical Christians would, would say, I'm saved by my faith plus me doing something. 51%, that's over half of us would say that. And so we need to understand the message of sola fide today. Another thing, though, I, I think that's true of the church today is, is this reality. There are many of us who, instead of wondering how can I achieve righteousness, there are many in the church who would just presume, hey, I'm, I'm part of the righteous. There would just be an assumption that I'm righteous, I'm good to go. We might say, you know what, uh, I've, I prayed a prayer when I was three years old or two years old or there was, a, there was an evangelistic crusade and someone said, if you want to be saved, raise your hand. And I, I raised both hands, so I know that I'm, I'm doubly good, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm saved. Or my mom told me that one time I read a pamphlet and there was a little thing at the back and it said, if you want to be a Christian, sign this. And so I, I signed this and so I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm saved. Now, right now, I don't love God. Right now, I'm living like the world lives. Right now, I have no desire to to pursue the things of the Lord or be involved in the things of the Lord or or love him with my whole heart, soul, mind, all that I am. I have no desire for that, but hey, sola fide, baby, I'm in, right? That's our misunderstanding. We kind of think of of faith as like this this guarantee that God has backed himself into, right? There's a... uh, company, I may have mentioned this before, but some of you I'm sure are very familiar with L.L. Bean, kind of that clothing and outdoor uh, goods company, and they have this very generous return policy that I'm sure some of us have abused before. Um, but essentially they say, look, if, you're not, if, if you don't have 100% complete satisfaction at all times with our product, you, you can return it. There was a reporter who I read an article uh, about this, this uh, two weeks ago, and she was talking about how she was interviewing some people who were at this store, who had gone to the store and returned their things. And one person she was talking to had returned a pair of boots after wearing them for 14 years. Another person was returning a backpack. In fact, he was returning a backpack and had returned a backpack every five years since sixth grade and was now in his 30s. Another person that she, she uh, talked to and, and watched actually go to the return desk. This, this guy took a, a bunch of shirts to the return counter. He was a little bit of an older guy. And he puts the shirts down and uh, the person says, okay, are you not 100% satisfied with these shirts? He goes, nah, I really love them, but I'm not 100% satisfied. And she said, well, what's wrong? He goes, well, there's the, the fraying and the armpits kind of coming loose. And she goes, oh, well, yeah, I, I see that. She goes, well, how long have you had these? He said, well, since 1976, <laughs> 40 years. But not 100%, right? Some of us think of sola fide like that. Hey, you know what? I pray a prayer, and sorry, God, but you did kind of guarantee this. And so uh, it's, it's like this contract that you've, you've, uh, you've signed, and so I, I can do whatever I want, and you have to save me because um, I, I believe in you, okay? Now, what I'm going to suggest this, this morning is we don't understand what, what believe means, We don't often understand what it means to trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And so I want us to explore that this morning. Here's the main thing that I want us to grasp as we look at Romans 1 and some other passages this morning. The main thing I want us to grasp is is this. You are justified. You and I are justified. And by that, we're forgiven of our sins. We're declared to be righteous by God when you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. 
We're justified. We receive the righteousness from God that we need. How? When we look to Jesus and we place our faith in him alone for eternal life. It's not some casual, flippant thing we say with our mouth in order to to get a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not some sort of contract that God has not realized how good it is and we've found the loophole. This is about coming to Jesus Christ and placing our faith in him alone for eternal life. And this is the message, the truth upon which, as many have said, the church stands or falls. I was talking with, with even someone this morning about some areas in which we've disagreed on some, some, some things. And you know what? It's okay to disagree on a lot of things. It is not okay to disagree on this. This is the essential truth upon which the church stands or falls. And here are three questions that I want us to ask and answer together to help us grasp this. Here's the first question. Question number one. What do we need in order to be saved? What do we need to be saved? Here's what we see in verse 16, right? As we look at verse 16 and verse 18, we realize we're in danger. Paul says it's the power of God for salvation. In other words, there's this idea that a person is in danger. And in verse 18, we find out what the danger is. We're in danger of the wrath of God because as the rest of the first part of the book of Romans is going to describe, we are the unrighteous. The the moralist among us is the unrighteous. The, The person who's never heard of God among us is the unrighteous. The Jew, the Gentile, all of us are this category of unrighteous. And so therefore, all of us are in danger of experiencing God's wrath. The, the noose is around our neck. The, the needle with the lethal injection is near our vein. The, the rifles have been raised and the command to ready aim has been uttered and the next words are going to be fire. We are in danger. We need to be saved. What, what, what can rescue us? What can rescue us from the, the wrath of God? In Luther's day, the answer was, well, the the church and the sacraments can can rescue a person. But what do we see as we think about this text today? It was true in Luther's day and it's true today. We don't just need goodness. We don't need God to look at us and say, you know what, uh, Daniel... Uh, you've got some issues, but you're, you're better than that person next to you. We don't just need morality. We need God to, to look at us and to say, you're not part of the unrighteous category. You're, you're righteous. You're part of the, the, the righteous category. That's what we need God to do. And it has to be true. Like, he can't just say, you know what, uh, Daniel, you're, you're part of the righteous. Come on in. You know, I know you're not really. God, God can't lie, right? I was at the memorial service for my uncle yesterday, and my, my dad was, was sharing some things there in this, this small uh, church in uh, the middle of nowhere, Arkansas. And just, just this, this, this reality just was, was brought through so clearly by my dad, this, this reality. Look, God can't lie. We need to be righteous, and it has to be a, a true declaration that we're righteous or otherwise we're unrighteous and we're in line of God's wrath. When my kids, sometimes we want to do something fun as a family, we say, okay, hey guys, before we do something fun as a family, the rooms need to be clean. And the kids are like, oh, dad, yeah, we're on it. 
Rooms are clean. I say, well, hold on. Uh, are the rooms like kid clean or dad clean or mom clean? Because I want mom clean, I'll settle for dad clean, but kid clean is not acceptable whatsoever, right? Now, sometimes when it comes to us, we're like, okay, I'm righteous. I mean, I'm not like righteous, righteous, but I'm like, I'm not this person over here, or I'm not that, you know, I'm not one of those, those people who goes to that church over there. I mean, I'm, I'm at Bethany Community Church, so I'm really, you know, I, I endure sermon after sermon, week after week. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my penance. You know, surely I'm part of the righteous. No, 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 it's not, it's not a comparative scale here. We need God to look at us and say, you are perfectly righteous. Do you see why Martin Luther freaked out? There's no way. There's no way I have the ability in and of myself to be a part of that group of the righteous. Here's... Here's the second question we can look at then. The second question is this. What has Christ done to save us? What has Christ done to save us? As we look at Scripture, we find that Christ has done absolutely everything. There's nothing left to do. What we need is absolute perfection. We need someone who has lived a human life and, can, and we can, can take credit for the things that they've done. And Jesus Christ, in his life and in the things that he did, was absolutely and completely perfect. Now just, just think about what that means. It means that he never deviated from what the will of the Father was in his actions, in his conduct. Everything that he did was what God would want him to do in that situation. He never did something that he wasn't supposed to do in that situation. There was nothing he omitted, nothing that he did that he wasn't supposed to omit or do. He was completely righteous. Every word that he spoke was the exact right word to speak and to be in accordance with God's will. Every thought that he had was complete perfection. As uh, you know, we're talking this, this week with some guys on Friday morning, and, and Kent was mentioning John chapter 8, which I, I think is just a, a great passage that enca- encapsulates what Jesus did. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 28, he says, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, left me alone Listen to this. This is verse 29. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That cannot be said of any of us, right? I sometimes do some things that are pleasing to God. But to do, the th- to always do the things that are pleasing to him, no one can do that except Jesus. Whenever Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, remember he says we need, we need to do this that all righteousness may be fulfilled. Jesus is absolute, complete perfection. The life that he lives and his death, his resurrection, provide the sacrifice that we need to pay for our sins. Jesus Christ does it all 
and does it all with absolute perfection. Romans 3.25 then says that Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation. We've talked about that word before, a, a complete satisfaction by his blood. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus was made like us, his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's complete satisfaction for the sins of the people. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. So in Jesus Christ, we have one who has complete righteousness. And what we need is to receive that righteousness, Right? I don't speak the way that I need to speak to my children with absolute perfection. Jesus never spoke to anyone in a way that was inappropriate. I I don't pray with the faithfulness that I need to pray in order to be righteous. Jesus never deviated from complete perfection in his prayers. I need God to look at me and see Jesus. When God looks at me, I need him to see the absolute, complete obedience of his son, Jesus Christ. I need to receive what the scripture calls a righteousness that's, that's foreign to me. It's, it's outside of me and that I, I need that. I need to receive that as a gift. Now, how do I get that? How do I get it? How can I receive this, this justification, this, this declaration that I'm righteous? I can't go to the right church and get it. I can't sleep without a blanket and get it. I can't pray enough prayers to get it. How do I receive it? That's the third question. What do we need to do to be saved? What do we need in order to be saved? Well, we need righteousness. What has Christ done to save us? Well, he's done everything. There's there's nothing left to do. Okay, so if that's true, if, if I need righteousness and Jesus has it, how do I get it? The Roman Catholic Church in the, in the 16th century said, okay, there's this big treasury and you do these things and we'll, you know, give a little here, give a little here, give a little here, and your last rites, you'll get a little bit more and then purgatory will work out the rest. That's not the teaching of scripture though. What do we need to do? How do I need to respond to this truth? I need to place my faith in Jesus Christ alone. Sola fide. Remember what Luther writes? As he looks at this passage, through faith in Christ, therefore Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours, rather he himself becomes ours. What happens here is we truly understand what biblical faith is and we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, very often people misunderstand what biblical faith is. Some people think, well, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe, you know, like some people think the word believe means to, to uh, believe something to be true, even though all evidence is to the contrary. So, you know, like I, I believe that the, you know, the Rangers are going to win the World Series next year. There's, there's really no evidence for that. But I, I believe, you know, I, I believe, you know, I believe strong. So that, that means something. No, it, it really doesn't, Okay. That's not the type of belief we're talking about here. 
Some people think, well, I, I believe like I, I, um, I believe some facts about something. So I, I believe that George Washington was the president. I, I believe that the temperature is going to be uh, 45 degrees tomorrow. And, and, and it's, it may be a belief that's in accordance with facts, but it has no demand on us. It's just kind of this, this, this intellectual knowledge that I have. And so I'm I'm believing that. And some people think, well, I, I believe in Jesus because I have these, these intellectual facts about him that I know, and I think that they're true. That's belief. No, that's, that's not the type of belief that Scripture describes either. Some people think, well, I, I need to, to believe and, and do something, like work, and, and, and maybe that belief in the work, that'll, that'll save me. That's not what we understand either. True biblical faith is trusting in Jesus alone for my salvation. Now, let, let me just give you a couple of thoughts to think about to help us understand what biblical faith is. Just a couple of thoughts here. First of all, think about this. So, so we're saved when we, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. First, first thought is this. Saving faith means I'm, I'm coming to a person, not, not chanting a magic formula, Okay? What is saving faith? Saving faith is me coming to a person, not chanting some formula, but, but coming to a person and, and believing in, in him, this, this person. It's, it's in the context of a relationship. Jesus, in John 6, says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I, I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but, but raise it up on the last day. John seven thirty seven. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So what does a person do as a person recognizes their need? What do they do? They, they, don't, they don't sign some contract. They don't just pray this, this prayer, but they say, okay, I'm, there's, here's Jesus, and I'm, I'm coming to him. And now sometimes the way that I express it isn't a prayer, but I'm, I'm, I'm coming to him. That's, that, that's what I'm doing. I'm not chanting some magic formula. That, okay, if I... If I say the right words, and if I say them at the right pace, then I am saved. No, that's, that's not what I'm, I'm coming to a person. This person who has died on the cross for my sins, and I'm, I'm trusting in him. I'm placing my complete confidence in this person. An illustration that I've used sometimes before, and maybe, maybe you've heard this illustration before, but you know, sometimes I've, I've asked people who are in my office, or I've said this here before on a Sunday morning, you know, uh, do you believe this stool, or do you believe this chair exists? And a person might say, well, yes, Daniel, I'm not some sort of crazy philosopher. Yeah, I believe that chair truly exists. Okay. I said, well, do you believe that this chair or this stool could hold you up? And a person would say, well, yeah, I, I think so. I think it could hold me up. And I said, well, why isn't this stool holding you up right now? And a person would say, well, because I'm not what? I'm not, I'm not sitting in it. Oftentimes, we believe some facts about Jesus. We believe that he died on the cross. We believe that he exists. We believe that he could save people, but we haven't placed our trust in him. We haven't put, you know, sat down in him, trusted in him fully. That question they asked at the beginning of our time together, if you were to die and stand before God and he were to say, why shall I let you into heaven, what would you say? A lot of times people would say, well, I, I, I tell God that I've tried to obey the Ten Commandments or I've tried to believe and do this. I've tried to have faith and do this and do this and do this. Look, that's not trusting in Jesus alone. You're sitting in your chair. You need to trust in Jesus Christ fully and completely for eternal life. Hebrews 
7.25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Jesus is a person, and we're called to trust in him for salvation. Another thought to think about here is thinking about what saving faith is. Saving faith in Scripture is always connected to repentance. It's always connected to repentance. In fact, sometimes as you read through the Gospels, you, you see people talking about you know, repent and believe, or sometimes the word repent is, is uh, through the book of Acts, sometimes the word repent is used synonymously with believe. So, for example, uh, as, as we see the book of Acts, Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Uh, Acts 17.30, now God commands all people everywhere to, to repent. Acts 20, Paul is said to be testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does faith, why does trust in Jesus Christ, why does it always come with repentance? Repentance isn't doing a bunch of works. Repentance isn't saying, okay, to be truly repentant, I've got to do these eight things, and once I've done these eight things, then I'm repenting and I can place my faith in Jesus. What, what repentance is, is this. Repentance is being aware of sin and saying, you know what? This, this path that I have been pursuing is, is a sinful path. This is not a path that leads to death. I, I believe, or leads to life. I believe that I'm on a path that leads to death. These things that I'm doing are wrong. And so I believe that to be true. I say, I'm, I'm going to turn from that. I, I understand that as sin. I believe it to be true. I'm going to turn from this. I no longer want to walk on this path. And what do I do? As I turn from these works, I t- turn from this sin, I turn to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm trusting in you alone. An illustration I've used before is that, you know, imagine you're dancing on the railing of a ship with a rock. I don't know. I don't know why you're doing that. It's you, not me. But you're doing it. And this, is this large stone that you're dancing on the railing of a ship with, and you fall into the ocean. As someone throws you a life preserver, what do you do? You, you let go of the rock, and you, you cling to the life preserver. It's not work. It's turning from something and turning to where life is. And that's what repentance is. And so a person who says, why, well, I, I prayed a prayer when I was 25 and didn't really change anything. I say, boy, let's, let's think about what you did there. Let's think if you truly trust in Jesus, because what is trusting in Jesus? It's turning from sin and placing your faith in this person and having your life transformed by the gospel. Another thing that I think it's important to remember as we think about what saving faith is, it's saving faith. Sometimes we say, well, you know, it's, we're saved by faith apart from works, and that's true in a sense, but it's true when we're talking about it from our perspective. But faith... Faith is always, our salvation is always based on works, not our works, but, but Christ's. Paul would say this, the reason salvation depends on faith, this is Romans four, sixteen, is in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. Romans 11, verse 6 says, if, if, uh, if, if salvation is by grace, it's not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be, work, uh, no, grace, would no longer be grace. 
Galatians chapter 2, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So in other words, as we think about our salvation, we cannot bring any works to the table because it would undermine the absolute work that Jesus Christ himself has done in obtaining our salvation. Saving faith, another thing to think about here, saving faith is the means by which God looks at me and counts me righteous. What does God need to do? God needs to look at me, and he needs to not play pretend, not say, okay, I'm going to pretend like Daniel's righteous. We all know he's not, but gosh, he's just so cute. You know, let's, let's bring him in. You know? I need God to look at me and say, no, no, this this. This person is righteous, not pretend righteous, but truly righteous. How can that happen? Through faith, through me trusting, clinging to Jesus, trusting in him, through that, Christ takes my sin and I receive Christ's righteousness. Here's how scripture describes it. We need to be found in him, Paul says in Philippians 3, 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, righteousness from God that depends on faith. 1 Peter three eighteen puts it this way, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Paul says in verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin. That's Jesus. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as I'm united with Christ, Christ takes on my sin and pays the full penalty for that sin, and I receive his righteousness and receive the full benefit of that righteousness. I want to tell you two stories help us think about this as, as we think about coming to a conclusion here. The first, the first story is in Luke 18. I want, I want to see this, help you see this described. Look at, if you want to turn there, Luke 18, verse 9. Here's this played out what faith alone looks like versus works, depending upon our works. Verse 9, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Okay, so these are people who trust in themselves. Their faith is not in God alone. It's not faith alone. It's on their works. They, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So one, a person that would be perceived as righteous, the Pharisee, and the other perceived as a sinful person, the the tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, man went down to his house justified 
declared to be righteous rather than the other. Now why? Not because he was, but because of God's grace. He turns to God in faith and cries out for deliverance. And what does God do? God answers because sola dea gloria, his glory is on the line. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone means, okay, by God's grace alone, I recognize that he's provided a Savior, and I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone, recognizing that as I bring nothing to the table here, God gets all the glory. This is not some, this is not some formula that I, I've discovered, some loophole in the cosmic contract with humanity that I can exploit so I can live my best life now and enter into eternity, and, and God has to take me. No, I I enter into this as a relationship, trusting in Jesus alone, saying, I trust in you alone for eternal life. Second story is is this. This uh, happened just, I believe, two, three weeks ago. Many of you know Dave Beakley, a a pastor in Polokwane, South Africa, from Peoria. Our church supports him and his ministry there. Uh, Tragedy struck their home beginning of, uh, or, yeah, three weeks ago, there was a young man named Handsome who lived with the Beakleys as a son since the age of 12, and so it had been 10 years he'd been living with the Beakleys, and uh, he, he died in, in a car accident. It's hard for the Beakleys, what was very hard for them was their, their uncertainty regarding his, his eternal fate. Dave wrote this in his newsletter. He, he said, Handsome understood and he, he verbally embraced the truth that he was given, but we don't know the condition of his heart. There, there, was, there was proclamation of belief, but, he says, but was it just mental assent? Had he, had he just intellectually believed the truths of the gospel? We don't know, right? We don't know. But what we do know is this. We have a responsibility, sola fide, to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our own eternal life. And then we have the responsibility to be proclaiming that message of faith alone for the others that God has brought into our lives. And it's not the task of the church to, to dispense God's, God's grace. But you can have a little grace, you can have a little grace. And it's also, this is, this is important I think for us to understand, it's not the responsibility of the, of the church on a Sunday morning to do all the evangelizing that's supposed to take place. All of us as ambassadors of Christ are to take the message of sola fide in the, in the, in the spheres in which God places us throughout the week and say, hey, let me tell you about this person in Jesus Christ and why my hope and my confidence is in him alone. Faith alone is not something I pray when I just become a Christian originally. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is a message that I continue to live and proclaim to the people that God, by his grace, brings into my life. And Dave and his wife, Carol, had the opportunity just within 24 hours of this young man passing into eternity, they had, they had the opportunity to, to talk to the people who were responsible for his death, the, the person who had been driving who was at fault in the accident, and, and to proclaim the gospel to him. Dave said to this young man, this young person, he says, I, I forgive you because I have been forgiven. And then he shared the gospel. He implored this, this man who had been responsible for the accident. He says, embrace Christ and receive forgiveness. Not because you deserve it, but because Christ has purchased it by his blood. Here's the truth. Here's the main thing we want to think about. 
you're justified, forgiven of your sins, and declared to be righteous by God, not by some fiction, but by receiving Christ's righteousness when you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your gospel, for the amazing truth that we can be brought into relationship with you through faith in your son, Jesus. We thank you for this this fundamental truth, this truth upon which we stand or fall. Father, help us stand upon it and stand firm. I pray that each of us would trust in Jesus for our salvation. We pray this in his name.